This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another Breakfast.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is director Ross Clark. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. Pleased to be here. You've written a book. Do you want to do you want to tell us about this and what and where and when that when we like to see it? Yeah, I wrote it during lockdown with my dad. Actually, uh, he's a sort of, he's a psychoanalytic theorist, and I studied film theory back in the day. And we we decided to write a book about cinema american cinema in the age of trump which kind of from two perspectives one was a kind of film theory political perspective which was my side and the other was a psychoanalytic perspective so we've sort of taken films from the revenant through to nomadland and mm. uh missing young woman and looked at how american cinema has kind of reflected or reflected or represented the way that american politics and the american society kind of pulled itself apart during the, the Trump years, I guess. Um, so, yeah, so that's coming out next year, uh, probably April, I think, in uh, Routledge, the publishers. What's the, what's the title of the book going to be called? called American Dream, American Nightmare, Cinema in the Age of Trump. It's a sort of, I think there's 10, 10 films that we cover in depth, but we cut, you know, everything from Get Out and um, Us to uh, Sicario and widows um but always looking at obviously the the tensions of you know trump class race and uh the me too movement and feminism within that so yeah the kind of uh all the identity politics and all the other things that have been going on there and how cinema reflects that i mean there are other books from other eras you know there's books in the reagan era that have looked at similar things so i think it kind of from that from that tradition. I remember watching The Purge, the election years, and 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 thinking, this can't satirise what's really going on in America. It just couldn't, even though it was a good, it was a good enough genre movie, it couldn't better what the reality was because reality was already, you know, quasi The Purge. Yeah, it's true. I mean, one of the things we know, so it's sort of, us is one of my, I think it's a sort of honourable doesn't quite work, but it almost, you know, completely nails the whole thing. And I think it's interesting how Us and Shoplifters, which is a Japanese film, and Parasite all kind of deal with the underclass and these stairs down to another world. And yet, all over the world, uh, you know, but obviously it was particularly bad 
during the last, well, in America during the last more than the last five years, but certainly got worse and worse over the last few years. I mean, it sort of goes back to a film I made my first feature, which was a documentary about homelessness in Los Angeles called Skid Row, where I lived with a rapper called Price Michelle from the Fugees. And we lived as homeless people for a couple of weeks. And, and that was a real eye-opener. I mean, I sort of feel like naive and stupid saying that, but that was 2007, 2008, just before Obama came in. And it was a real eye-opener about, you know, there's 80,000 homeless people on the streets in Los Angeles every night. I think that problem is even worse now today. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I used, I've, I, in, a, in a past life, I worked for a government agency that used to, that invested and regulated social housing. So the stats and stuff about Britain and homelessness, there's kind of, there's the people you see, then there's the people who've just got a home who are going from sofa to sofa. There's a kind of weird life that some people end up living that's still homeless, but you would never see them. And I think anything we can do in this country, Americans can do 10 times better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Poverty and homelessness, it's like, it's like nothing you can, I mean, not that people in this country are better off in a way, but, you know, just the scale of the problem mm. is my, because you kind of, it's like a refugee camp really downtown Los Angeles. So I guess that was one of the, one of the points of genesis of that idea really for me, just how bad has the American dream failed the American people and how does cinema talk about that? And I think it talks about it a lot, you know, whether it's through the war on drugs or the underclass or, or, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter. I think it's, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a ripe subject because I look at, I look at a lot of American TV that I enjoy and they're all largely about anti-heroes and they're all about the, and they're all about how the American dream fails because unless you've got the head start of money in your pocket, because you inherited it, your wealth, then the only way to game the system is what a lottery win, or become a sports person, or get into crime. And obviously, the crime side of it, it's a very simplistic view. Um, but there's certainly the way that TV drama in America seems to do. I'm just rewatching um, Justified at the minute, and you know how many characters in that are, are victims of having gone to the Gulf War or Afghanistan, and they've turned out. Good, bad, indifferent. They don't they either go into law enforcement or they become drug dealers. It's sort of, and it and it's sort of that collateral damage of the ongoing cycle of capitalism and keeping it going that is unaccounted for. And you know, you look at something like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad. You know, they're all tales about the American dreams ended. Yeah, or even you know, like Succession. Now you sort yeah. of think, well, that even at the top end of the American dream, it's still kind of horrible. Well, look, let's get on to your movie then. Um, the bird catcher. Now, before we get into details about you directing it and then you produced it even as well, do you want to give people a brief synopsis as as to what they can what they'll find when they go? Because I should say it's available on Prime in the UK to subscribers. So to tempt them yeah. there, what do you want to give a brief synopsis to what the bird catcher is? Yeah, it's a, it's set in 1942 in Norway. Um part of the history of Norway that isn't well known outside of Norway is that Norway was, you know, kind of a like Vichy France, a kind of uh, collaborator to some degree because of um, Quisling and what happened in the parliament there. And um, and there was a resistance, but there was, a, and the British were bombing Norway and the Germans were occupying Norway. And throughout that, every, up until 42, things seemed to be fairly smooth and, and the Jewish population in Norway hadn't been under threat, nor the kind of left-wing population. 
But suddenly in one fell swoop in October 42, they rounded up all the Jewish families. Uh, this film is set in Trondheim, which is in northern Norway, about halfway up. I mean, Norway is, as they say, when you flip Norway, you can hit Italy. So it's a long country. But Trondheim is about halfway up. And, you know, there were about 200 Jewish people in, the, in Trondheim at the time. And they rounded them all up. And one night, um, they killed the theatre director that was uh, in the town. It was kind of a radical Jew. And, um, you know, then they started to ship them off to Oslo and then eventually to the camps in, in uh, mainland Germany. So this is the story of what happens to a young uh, girl that has to escape that situation, a young Jewish girl whose father is believes that they're safe and obviously comes to a very big shock that night. And so it's partially based in real historical events, partially based in kind of what I would call not exactly folklore, but stories about people that escaped. The only way to escape was to escape across the border to uh, Sweden. So it's that girl and how she survives uh, the war. She finds herself on a farm in a remote part of, uh, of, of Norway and, and how she survives that. I'll say no more than that. No, 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 that's a perfect summation. And I must admit, you, you, you're right. About, I mean, certainly from my point of view, even I was going, I was at the t- for a few years. I was I was visiting Oslo, and it wasn't until about my fourth visit that I went to the Resistance Museum and learned about Quislin, learned about um, you know occupied Norway. It wasn't something that I was particularly au fait with, and it's certainly not something you taught in British history of World War Two. I mean, I think you know we're this film. I mean, it's a funny one, but this film is. Uh not what they call the hero genre in Norway. In Norway, that's the genre of the resistance fighter. Mm. And this is a film about the resistance, whereas most Norwegian films about the war yeah. are about resistance. I mean, uh, there's the one that was nominated for the Oscar that came out a few years ago, The King's... Now I can't remember the full title, but... Um, well, you, I mean, about... Max, Max Manimus was like a big heroic. You know, exactly, it's like, yeah. like all the resistance rolled into one character almost to sort of tell yeah. this, this story. Yeah, so this film is a little bit unusual uh, because of that, you know, because most of Norwegian's war stories are, are stories of resistance. Mm. And this is definitely not really, it sort of talks about what some, you know, Norway, Norway was a very poor country. Mm. Um, yeah, till the, country. till the oil was found, they were they were living off their fish. No, it's an interesting... Yeah, so... Part. Different. It's in only two generations. It's a country that's completely transformed itself, flipped itself from mm. the poorest country to the richest. And and you know, if you you've been to Oslo, you know it is an incredible way of life and standard of living that they have. Mm. Um, and yet, not an ostentatious country. They're sort of a a bit of a kind of tall poppy syndrome. I think they they really got a good, you know, kind of social democrat kind of attitude to the world and they and there's a lot of, they sort of strive more for equality than anything else i think they and they've used their money their oil money far more sensibly than any other country that film by the way is called the king's choice which is a very good film a norwegian about you know the days of uh the of quizzling because we obviously use that expression the quizzling you know to mean a and so the days when the parliament was betrayed by Quisling, and then the king eventually fled to London, of course. How does a British director end up helming a film about, about Norwegian history? 
Yeah, it was quite an odd one in that I had a producer friend, a guy called Leon Clarence, hmm. who introduced me at dinner uh, in, at the Cannes Film Festival, in fact, to a woman called uh, Lisa Black, who said she had this great script. Uh, you know, she, she knew that I directed, she knew that I directed the film already, uh, Derma, well, Desiree, as it ended up being known, which hmm. had plugins from Justified, of course. Hmm. And uh, and so uh, I read the script very that night, in fact, that she gave it to me and went and said, oh, yeah, I love it. And then, very, you know, as, as is the way in the film business, uh, and it was set in Norway, it was an American-Norwegian initiative. Yeah. So that's why it was a language script. Mm. It had been written by a Norwegian who'd studied in Trondheim, who had a Jewish friend, a um, guy called Trodden Mortensen, who's a lovely bloke who, mm. you know, ended up working on the script. And he um, had a Jewish friend who told him these stories about Trondheim and the war, and he'd written the script while he was uh, living there in, in Trondheim. And and she developed, Lisa developed it over a number of years with him, and and then they, you know, had it in English. And the idea was to kind of access Norwegian fund money. Snowman was one of the films that did that, was one of the first yeah, films yeah, yeah. that did that. Um, and so we did, we accessed some of the tax money, Leon and Lisa, uh, and I produced it together. You know, Leon had a company at the time that was a had a fund, and uh, and so yeah, we it was pretty bold of him to do that. And um, but it was a, a really incredible experience, and it happened very once it happened, it happened very very quickly, which is weirdly often the way. You know, films take years to get off the ground, and then when mm. someone says go, literally three months later, you're standing in a field filming. You know, it's just. <laughs> Yeah, I think Brandon Palmer talks about it as being once you get in the K, once you get in the tunnel, the only way out of the tunnel is the, is the light at the end of it. You can't ever go back once you start. I think it's something like once a, once a bit of money's been spent, people are like, "Run, let's you know we've got to get on with it. you know." And it's you know the development can take years, as you probably know. You mm, know I do. So this script had been developed quite a long time. I re- I did rewrite it. I was going to say so. So you get, for the for the director for the dr- first time director who's not done one yet, being brought in when a script is ready and you like the script. What do you what 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 do you do there? And, and what's your conversations like with Trond about about the script so you can make it? Because obviously you've still got a director film you want to direct. With Trond, I was lucky in the sense that he, you know, we kept him in the loop always. But I said, there's certain things I want to do. I want to make it. He'd written it more as an ensemble piece, which was from many points of view. So there were many things that she wasn't in, Esther, the main character. And I made it so that it was all from her point of view. That was the major change. And then the ending, I think, was a lot softer in his story. I think Trond writes brilliant. He writes brilliant kids' shows, in children's shows, in films in Norway. It's very successful television and film. And I think I've thought about it because, you know, it's been a couple of years since the film came out. I've thought about it a few times. In a way, I wish I'd made it more as a film for teenagers because I think it ended up being more a film that younger people enjoy in a way. And I think I think, I think we kind of maybe should have, rather than it sort of falls between two stools in some ways. And I think maybe we should have done that. But I think, you know, it's still, I think it still works. I just think I I feel like a younger, if you'd actually really thought about it as a film for younger people, it might have 
worked better and it might be more successful, I think. So, you know, but I think Trond, the ending I really wrote was, you know, like in the original script, the, well, I shouldn't say, no, I'm not going to do any spoilers. So, but anyway, the ending is a lot harder in my script, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know what you're saying in terms of the end. So, yes, I understand. Not everybody walks off into the sunset, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> in yours versus yeah. the other one that maybe they did. Yeah, well, they didn't quite, but they sort of felt like, well, you know, not many people. I mean, the truth was, you know, once I dug into the research in Tron time, we went mm. to the synagogue, the museum there, and we met the granddaughter of the pretty much the only Jewish guy that came back. Right, and when okay. you think 200 people that went and literally a handful of people that came back. Mm. So you know, the odds of you surviving the camps were very, very slim, as you know, you know as we all know. And yeah. those kind of stories, you also, I'm not Jewish, you know, and I felt a certain, I'm not Norwegian, I'm not Jewish. So I felt a certain responsibility to kind of tell that story as accurately as possible and and to really dig into the history that we knew. So that's also part of the rewrite, I think. But but Trond was very supportive, you know, and I think he, you know, I think he, he loves the film. I know that. So that's it was a good relationship. I, I get on with writers because I don't I'm not really a writer writer, but I can write, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. And, and I get on with them because I think I sort of respect the integrity it's like we weren't going to turn this into a different kind of film yeah we were just a little bit more pointed in in her favor i think you know so so i think as long as you keep the integrity of what you know i've adapted books and similarly i've got on with the writers when i've done that because as long as you keep the heart of the story that they you know the theme and the character Mm. that's really writers care about no, without a doubt, I can I can echo I can I can definitely say yes to that as a writer, and it was something actually. It's, it's interesting you echo something I heard Sidney Lumet say about about somebody asked him why does he get all the best writers, and you said because I respect them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, you think about someone like Ridley Scott. I mean, he's he must have worked with you know twenty thirty writers over here. He knows Ridley Scott knows how to write. He's not a writer as such, but he must know. Hmm. You know, you learn. How to, as a director, if you don't learn how to work with writers, you're really in trouble. Because mm. for me, the script is primary to it all being good or not. I mean, I just read an interview in the New Yorker yesterday with Peter Anderson, and he talked about that at great length about how the script really is everything. You 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 can't do anything if the script doesn't work. And I'm a great believer in that. So I have a lot of respect for the for the writer, and I have a lot. Of, because I, you know, I do it from time to time, and I mm. know how it is. Now, this this film sort of lives and dies on on the casting of Esther, because she's because, like you said, rather it be an ensemble, it's very much the world mm. according to Esther. What is what the film we watch? I mean, it, it does go to different guys, but all the time it feels like we're looking through Esther's eyes uh, if if she's not act that directly involved in the action. So, casting is it Sarah Sophie Bassina? Is that on bus? Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I think And she's Danish I'm, as well, isn't she? So that's kind of interesting in itself. She's half um Algerian. Okay. Well. So you know, it's interesting. Um I I I loved working with her. Um I think she's a great actress. I mean, her and Jacob were the first two people I cast. Jacob plays 
the father of uh, the the owner of the farm, if you like. And he's uh, he's also in a film that I love called The Guilty, which is a Danish. Oh yes, he plays show. the he plays the caller. He plays the guy on call, doesn't he? But yeah, so they were the first two people we cast, and they just they worked very well together. They knew each other already. I, you know, it's I think. Of the people I've talked to, and I've talked to a lot of people, and obviously when people talk talk to you about your own film, they they're always they're always quite nice about it. But mm. I think I think about I'd say about two thirds of the audience will go with what she has to do, mm. and I think about a third of the audience don't. And if you don't go with that, and you don't believe the casting, or you don't buy it because of X, Y, and Z, the film doesn't work, mm. and that's just. I think it's the reality. It didn't work for some of the critics and some of the bigger critics, you know, and that really... That well, really I mean, I'm guessing you're saying once she's cut her hair is what you're saying is the bit that people might yeah. not... Well, I mean, but yeah. the thing is, in that in that time, I mean, this is something me and my wife talked about, just having short hair was a, was a masculine thing. It was... Women didn't have... You didn't have, you know, Mia Farrow having a bloody pixie cut in 1942. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, mean, I think that was that was always my argument. It, it's like, you know, my argument was if you if you have short hair and you kind of act a little bit manly in those days, it's you know we you think about. I mean, even in the last twenty five years, how far we've moved in terms of gender and sexual identity politics mm. since forty two. It's like an, in another universe, without a doubt. You yeah. know. So I personally think it works for that era, but if I was casting that part today, it might be a different way. You might cast differently because of that. But yeah, and I think her performance is great, and she's in every scene. And you know, I think she really did a brilliant job. She's she's very well loved in that in Denmark, and and you know, has been a lot of. Uh, a lot of shows, the killing and things like that, the, you know, the mm. bridge and stuff. Like that. So, yeah, and we had uh, the Scandinavian actors that we had were just fantastic. I mean, Laura Byrne, who's in Foundation, um, obviously Jacob, um, and uh, and then you know August Deal, who we kind of know as the he often plays. Not I was going to say I was going to come on to him. He is just unfortunately he is in in movie land. He is a Nazi, isn't he? <laughs> Well, in English language films. Yes, sorry, is, yes, yes, I, of course, yes. I mean, he's in The Counterfeiters. He plays a Jew, in fact, I think. Ah, um, okay. Uh, you know, so it's sort of, I think it's just, you know, Tarantino cast him in Glorious Bastards. And, mm. But he's in the Terrence, you know, but he's just, a, he like, August is a bit like Walton Goggins in that, you know, you kind of know, you know, they're just really clever actors and they come on set and they know they know everything more than you do and it's a bit intimidating and they because they know the scene better than you do and they know oh really they can see, yeah and they kind of know the mark they kind of know the marks better than you do and they know what the problems are. it's very challenging how, how do you, i'm going to say how do you how do you so you're, you're you're meant to be directing but if the if the actor He's so confident in what needs doing. How do you direct at that point? It becomes a conversation that has limits because, <laughs> you know, we have... I mean, with Walton, he did most of that work with me before we shot, which was brilliant, in that we had long, long conversations. I mean, that's the kind of collaboration you want. Yeah. Is, 
where an actor comes along and they just, you know, because actors are always fighting for their character. And so they see the world through that prism. Now, the film has a bigger prism to look through, obviously. Mm. So having, having an actor do that is so... It's such a gift to you as a director. I, I always see it as a gift. I don't, August put me in positions on set sometimes, not in a bad way, but just, you know, like, oh, shit, yeah, we haven't really thought that through properly, or maybe he's right, you know. And it was a really, really challenging. But I think Jacob did that a bit as well, and I think that that's a sign of a good set that you can kind of... And that, again, comes back to the writing, that sometimes the writing, you know, once you're on set, you you learn something about the writing that... You need to fix. How do you know, how sometimes. do you then you know obviously because that's 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 I guess in those moments there's 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 macro and micro happening at the same time in some decision making. How do you prioritize then? Obviously you've got the days you've got the call sheet and then you've suddenly got a question from nowhere. I mean you're not going to invent a whole new scene. Yeah, but you you are going to you are going to potentially adapt a scene or change it in some way. I mean I think the scene where Jacob comes home, which is one of my favourite scenes in the film. I think we worked, you know, that that changed on the day a little bit because we didn't feel some of the dialogue worked. You know, I mean, I'd be all for rehearsals, frankly, before you film. Okay. But you just never have time or the money to do that these days, you know, because cable readings or rehearsals will just teach you so much about your script. So yeah, you just yeah, you're right. It's a micro macro problem because you want to make the scene good, but you also want to make you want to make sure that it fits within the tone and the kind of character arc of that character. Mm. You know, so, I mean, look, if if I had my way, you'd shoot chronologically. Yeah, well, <laughs> right. it's good. Wander yeah. Reffin does it, doesn't he? He's a chronological shooter. <laughs> you can afford to do that, or find a way to do it. It helps one because. You don't have to re the actors don't have to reset for where they are in the story, and you don't have to reset for that. Right. You know, guessing day by day. But the reality is, if you're on a location, you aren't going to. You know, you don't have mm. the money to do that. You've got Thirty days to shoot it or less. You know. So yeah, I, I, I was watching your film. I mean, you. you, you 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 can't imagine what it's like to live in an occupied country having never lived in one. And I was reminded of Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, and there's a line from Tor, the character Tor who says, uh, sometimes you have to pretend to survive. And in, in Man's Search for Meaning, he sort of says there are no rules because you are just surviving. When you're in a concentration camp, you are surviving. You know, the idea that you might not share. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Or something 
isn't a bad thing or a selfish thing. You are surviving against the odds. And while an occupied country is is a, is, a, is a lot lighter than than a than a concentration camp, it's still all bets are off in terms of what you would normally do and what you wouldn't normally do. Um, and I thought you encapsulated it really, really succinctly in just that one line. Really, it's sort of we're trying to work out who's good and who's bad, but actually, what is good and what's bad. <laughs> Yeah, that's what the film's about for me, though. That that's the the line that you picked there is, to me, that's the film. You know, what are you willing to do in order to survive whatever your situation you're in? And I think if you you know, and I think one of the reasons why I liked the script was I felt that you know, this was a, when I first read it, it was the height of the Syrian crisis. It felt like just as relevant today as it is back in '42. You know, this is not, of course, it's a film about what happened to the Jews in Norway and what happens in Norway, you know, which is a, it's a massive subject. But at the same time, it's also like, well, this is still happening around the world. In fact, there are more, I mean, thank God, not the same genocide, hopefully, but, you know, there are still huge numbers of refugees. In fact, more, more refugees in the world than any other time since World War II. So, you know, and it's like the question, you know, the question about, oh, well, why do the, you know, you go back to sort of recent news, Pretty Patel, well, why do people get on these boats? I mean, I don't think they get on those boats for a laugh, right? Mm. You know, or because they fancy living in this country. I think there has to be a real level of desperation to drive you to do those things, because I can't imagine doing that in my... I mean, I mean, it's sort of, if you watch um, Michael Winterbottom's In This World and you see that journey, you kind of go, well, nobody wants to do that journey no. No. to get to Walthamstow, do they? You know, it's like, it's really not that, it's not that desirable. But that kid, I went to the premiere of that film and that, you know, they spoke about what happened to that kid. Yeah. You know, Tony Grissoni and, and Michael Winterbottom. And, and, you know, that kid ended up working in a, I mean, I don't know where he is now. That's probably 20 years ago, but he ended up working in a, you know, it's like a restaurant, didn't he, as a washer up or... Yeah. Like he's coming here and he's living, you know, this amazing life. But I mean, this, you know, the situation in Syria, if you've seen that doc, I can't remember, um, oh, what's it called? The Channel 4 doc, which is about the doctors who stay to look after. I can't remember what it's called now. But anyway, that doc is just, you're just like, yeah, why would, of course you would do anything to survive mm. in those situations. So I think that's where I saw a resonance between the bird catcher mm. and why I thought the story for today, because I think, you know, again, you know, that I think Jacob's character is the most interesting character in the film because you have to ask yourself, you know, this guy is a kind of, he's a poor farmer who sees an opportunity with the Nazis. That also, to me, resonates with the sort of populism around the world. Without a doubt. You know, and you're sort of like, yeah, of course, people like that are um, susceptible to that kind of influence. and. And then, you know, what do you do and how do you get played? And, if, you know, he does get played by the Nazis, you know, quite clearly. Mm. In one way, he's not a sympathetic character at all. He's a horrible character. But in another way, you can say, well, he's not an evil man necessarily, right? He's a sort of, he's stuck in a place that wasn't of his making. And, you know, you sort of ask yourself what he has to do. I mean, I think apart from Johannes's character, Johannes Gunkar, I wouldn't say there's any, you know, I think Johannes is, is a bit more arch his character Fred than mm. most of the characters, in the film. but everyone else is just in a terrible situation and making what they can of it. Mm. You know, I, 
And I think I think the um, back I think the backdrop of like snowy wintry Norway sort of helps helps sort of accentuate the struggle because you can't even just sit on a hill and you know smoke a cigarette and for five minutes. It's freezing. Yeah. If it's not oppressive Nazis, it's freezing icy cold. And the house we shot in was a museum. And so it's a farm from that era. And so you really understood because we didn't heat it and we understood what it was like to be in those places. Yeah. And it was really cold and really you so, I mean struggling. that's the question I wanted to ask you. So for the for the and I I've spoke to other directors who've filmed in the snow, but what what less I mean you couldn't get more contrast than shooting a documentary in the streets of LA to shooting in the mountains of Norway for temperature change. So yeah. what sort of lessons learned outside a big coat could you pass on to a director who might be embarking on a on a snowy shoot? Well, the big coat thing is not a joke because it's more than a big coat. The Norwegians have a kind of, I think, about 20 things they wear in different ways that help you survive it. And, and, and day by day, the crew would bring me something from their gran or from their mother or from their house mm. to help to see me kind of stupid Englishman freezing his ass off, you know. So I think they that's one thing, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, when you're working with a Norwegian crew, it's not a problem because they are just that's their lives every winter is they they live in snow and they they know how to deal with it so i found it a lot easier than filming in new orleans for instance where i couldn't breathe because it was so hot you know yeah 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 much rather be in the cold than be in that oppressive <laughs> heat because uh, that oppressive heat i felt like i was going to die in that whereas in the snow yeah i mean obviously there's a few scenes in that film where you know, Sazu, Sarah Sophie has to go in the water and there was a stunt woman there for that as well. And, you know, that was pretty horrible. I, was, that I mean, that's that's my follow-on from, from the sort of big question. Like, shooting that, jumping from a moving truck into a stream is a is, is going to be shocking for stunt or stunt person or actor, you know, because that, that water's really cold. So how do you manage oh. that kind of sequence? Well, I mean, that was day two. Day one was on the ice lake. So really? Really? Yeah, so we had a baptism of fire. It was really schedule-wise. <laughs> it was all near Trondheim. And then when we went to the farm, that was all mm. um, outside Trondheim, a lot, quite near a place called Arda, which is a Swedish ski resort. But we were just on the Norwegian side. But anyway, um, the truck was a... It's funny, so a, a Norwegian stunt guy got in this young woman from... And she's from Essex, from where I'm from, right? Oh, and, wow hilarious and she's brilliant you know um and and she wanted to do it again she wanted to do that stunt again and the cameraman was like so we had a, we were really lucky those first days because we had this grip department that were mm. giving us much more than we paid for because the guy owned a grip equipment company and uh he um worked you know he worked with the john christian the dp who's a brilliant dp many times so he he got this snowmobile and a Russian arm for that shot. And so we follow the truck and everything, and she jumps off and, mm. and spotted it. But there was, I, was a really, I think it was a very dangerous stunt because there was a lot of rocks and, you no, know. looks it. It's very steep mm. and very unpleasant. And so, so sorry, of, Ross, just to clarify then, so that so the stunt really was done in in the great outdoors. There's no, there's no trick going oh, yeah. on here. Oh, there was, I mean, we had no money for that trickery, unfortunately. So, I mean, the only trickery you see is a big pullout of the lake. I think that's the only shot that we had big trickery for. So, yeah, so Sarah Sophie does it to the point where she's ready to jump. She's on a rope that you paint out. And then the stunt girl does it. And she 
first time I think, and that's the first, that's the only take that is in the film. I think they nailed it brilliantly. They didn't like the, the I remember the leaves are in one corner and I was like, no, that's actually nice, kind of gives it a depth as well, gives it a kind of perspective. Um, but she was like, oh, should I do it again? I was just like, no, please, that's no, fine. I'm really happy with that. So, um, but then we had to get Sarah Sophie in the water doing this revenant face down shot, you know, with the handheld camera. And she, yeah, that was horrible for her because she was absolutely freezing and she didn't get much rest, you know. Someone got frostbite that day from being in the snow, you know, it was like, those first few days were rougher than anything else we did. We did all the big moments, which I think if I was scheduling now, I wouldn't do it that way, but we were kind of forced into it because we needed snow in Trondheim and we were moving into March and the snow was leaving. And that's why we're north for more snow. So you always, you know, it's always with film, you're always, you know, there's so many elements, including the elements, that you're battling against. So, you, you you know, you can't choose your moment necessarily. I always think the Revenant moved from, didn't they move from somewhere down to Argentina to keep the weather or something? Oh, like I don't know. Point? I didn't know that. Well, that, they had the budget, didn't they? Yeah, they had the budget, but they ended up moving, you know, halfway around the world to kind of keep going in, this, <laughs> in the weather. So, yeah, anyway. Your cinematographer, John Christian Rosenland. Um, yeah. You've got, like we say, you've got the great outdoors, you've got your historical farm, You've got your vistas for miles and miles and stuff. So in terms of the look and feel for you, what were your conversations like about that? And obviously you've got the stark contrast of when you're inside places as well. But but I mean, I think the process was the best process I've ever had on a film because the Norwegian heads of department, you know, the wardrobe and uh, the production design and John Christian's camera crew and the, and the grip and the gaffers, were incredibly thorough. So you, I'd let, I'd, re, I'd created a, a lookbook, which I do for all my films, which was, you know, probably a hundred pages. Mm. Um, you know, Pan's Labyrinth, even though that's not a film set in the snow, was a big influence. But also, you know, the sort of look and feel of something like there will be blood as well in terms of the period look. Mm. And we see there's only so much you can achieve, but John Christian and I then spent a lot of time together and we go to the cinema. We went and the film that really weirdly influenced us the most in terms of the look, I would say is arrival in terms of. Oh, really? The thing we liked about it was we wanted these big wide vistas. So we wanted to kind of shoot close-ups on wide lenses. Right. And on anim- we went anamorphic for that reason. So it's shot on these beautiful hawk anamorphic lenses, which, you know, to me, yeah, everyone shoots on the Alexa, but obviously it's what glass you put on it and then how you light that that matters. And if you've got, as you say, this natural splendour, mm. you know, what you want to see the wides, you want to see all of that. Because also as well, with with it being, because obviously I'm, I'm familiar with the territory you're filming in, and, and I guess... It could be easy to get, and it's it's interesting you made that choice with the people in the foreground to be able to get that background because I c- you can see how it would have been easy to throw a drone in the air and go, oh, look, come to Norway, isn't it beautiful? Look how cinematic it looks, which wouldn't have lent the film anything, but actually your, your, your positioning of the camera really sort of, I thought got to the kind of grittiness of living in a snowy place as much as living through occupied Nazi Norway. I wanted people to feel cold when they were watching yeah. it. I wanted them to understand that sort of ardour of that life. The Norwegians were very, 
very on it with their history and the reality of that. And that was great for us. And as I say, working with John Christian was very, it was fun because we, we did, that was the one thing we did have time for was we had a lot of prep time with him and, mm. and so he and I got to know each other well, got to know each other, the films we loved, the look we wanted. And, and I think we, I think it's a beautiful looking film. And I think we created a look that we were both very happy with, you know, I think it was, you know, you'd always want more money. You'd always want more days. But the only thing I would say that I miss in that film, and that's no one's fault really, is the scale of the town when you're first in the town, mm. the light town. And you just, it, you need money to, if you want to see a town that's living and breathing in 1942, that's a lot of money. Yeah, 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 yeah. Extras alone would have been a budget of a film. And then dressing, you know, sets. So we found kind of, Trondheim has its waterfront. We found that. The, the bridge is iconic. You know, we found some iconic places where we could shoot without having to worry. And we obviously did some VFX on that, but you really have to kind of put, then you can't go as wide as you want to. Yeah. You know, then you I thought, to- I mean, to be honest with you, I thought you went wide enough. I was impressed because I obviously I've been there and and to see you kind of recreate, certainly the the sort of bombing recreate, when it's like the planes overhead and stuff and the anti-aircraft guns and stuff. Yeah, you know that, yeah. that you know you got the sense of the danger as it were and 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 what the and then for when carrots later on talk about the bad british you understand what it is they're complaining about yeah exactly and and i think yeah the vfx team at lip sync sheila and that and their team did a really great job with that because that you know we went back and did one day's extra shooting where we got the bridge we got that weird bridge uh that they walk under a couple of times and we got the town square and those three shots give you Trondheim and and then rest that with VFX and that gives you the feeling of the of the town as you say if you've been there I think you know they are three of the more iconic things you'll see. A film gets written and a film gets produced and then it gets edited and I know I didn't notice till talking to you you've got two editors working with you Nicholas Gaster and Laura Maraud or Maraud sorry what was what did you discover about the film in editing that wasn't evident when it was on the page, you know, that, that, that became the finished film that we see today? Well, there's a film in your head mm-hmm. that you always... And even when you make it, you still have the film in your head. And I think that, you know, that's... For me, I would struggle with that transition. Laura Murad was someone I'd worked with who had come through, I think, James Gavries, who produced Maradona and stuff. And, and Amy had recommended her to me. And she was very good she'd helped me fix some of the things on my last film on on Desiree and and I liked working with her and then so we worked with her from the beginning and then we sort of we sort of felt that we just it just needed an extra few percent and I Nick Gaster came through another friend and Nick Gaster is you know he's edited movies for a long long time and he you know did Moon Mm. um, famously but he's been around forever and he's he's a brilliant kind of he just saved scenes by small amounts and made a big difference and it's amazing how that kind of cut can kind of lift the movie and make it travel faster Mm. and sometimes you need that I'd, i'd say he probably edited no more than five minutes out of the film right but wow that five elevated the film i think I don't think we made hugely different choices. It was just more like topping and tailing and so a few little choices and 
<clears throat> but it, I mean, I liked working with both of them. I don't, I think I would work better in the edit now because I think I'm less, I think when you're, I don't know, I think you're a bit, well, I've certainly been a bit scared of it as a, as a director because I, I have to sort of fight my disappointment with what I end up with. <laughs> well, don't they? Don't I mean? There's that horrible phrase, isn't it? The suicide cut, which is the director, the the film you've got in your head, and then the film they show you, and you're like, what? Yeah, the assemblies are really. <laughs> awful. You know, I've now watched three or four assemblies of my films, and it's a horrible thing to watch. And and I guess now, I now I do a lot of work with students now. I teach a lot mm. in film school, universities, and stuff. And I I think through that through watching lots of cuts of short films and helping script stage, production stage, editing stage, I think it's helped me as a filmmaker a lot because mm. I've learned, people say they know how to watch an assembly. Most people don't know how to watch it. They'll sort of rubbish the film without realising, well, there's so much more that you can bring out. Of this. Yeah. I mean, just the sound alone is going to like elevate it so much. The score, the grade, all these other things that come later down the line. But also, you know, the assembly is just so long. It's like two hours, two and a quarter hours for a 90-minute film. There's so much kind of extra padding in there that, that will make a huge difference. So you, I just think you have to learn it. I mean, the thing I... I mean, I think, you know, filmmaking is so empirical and the shame of it is that people don't get enough chance to make enough films. You know, it's like... I was I always use... I don't know if it's a good example or a bad example, but I always use the example of... Radiohead, where I sort of think, well, if they'd only made one album, no one would have known who they were because their first album really wasn't that great. Second album was kind of interesting, but the third album was like, oh, wow, yeah. look at that. And look who they are now. You know, and I think with filmmakers, they get, you know, so few first time filmmakers, second time filmmakers get a chance to make another film. And yet you really need time. Mm. Well, I must. Have, I, I I interviewed Kieran Hawkes, who directed the film Piggy. It was like his tenth anniversary, and he was saying, looking back on the film, the edit is the thing he's more confident in now. That if he could have gone back to when he was making the film, he said, he said, I think he said, I remember it right. It was he was trying to edit to the script as opposed to edit the film. Edit what exactly? Play the hand you've got, not the hand you want. As they say, I think that's that's the key to it, and I think you learn that. And sometimes you learn that the hard way, you know. Mm. And and sometimes you learn that because you have a brilliant editor or editors that come in and say, well, you haven't got that, so we better make it do this, you know. I mean, there are tricks. Of course there are, you know, and I sort of use them now when I'm teaching students. I'm like, well, we can always, mm. you know, there's an ADR line you can put in here that will help the fact that you haven't really communicated this idea across or whatever. So, you know, it's it's... It's the film does get made three times for sure, written, produced, edited, and, and, and then really, the punt, and then the public come and see it, and they see the film they see, don't they? Which is, and you have no control over that. You've got, <laughs> you, know, you know, you're always like, oh god, you know. I mean, I was, you know, Bradshaw mutilated my film, and I mean, he mutilated Joker the same week. So I guess I should feel like I'm in good company, but it, it's sort of, you know, it's very bruising. But at the same time, then there are other people who just love it. So you're like, well, it's like, you know, you and I could talk about films all night and we we might agree on some, but we'd argue about others, you know, that we did or didn't like. And it, at the end of the day, you kind of, I, I'm happy with that film. And I think it hits a certain audience. And I think, it, you know, if you buy the main conceit of the story, then you, you'll go with it and it's, 
it's it's you know. I mean, it, going uh, back to the, the the stunt we talked about before, there's there's a lovely mm. visual that you use, which is the the red coat that she sheds, mm. and that goes off into the stream, and it's one of the few times where we leave Esther and you go back and revisit the coat swimming away through the water, which obviously red coat blood. Um, is is an, is an obvious sort of metaphor. Yeah, but was was that? I mean, is that on the page? The the coat vanishing through the waters, or for better or for worse, the Macbeth and the red coat were written in by me. So <laughs> I'll take the blame for it. Yeah, I think I wanted some intertextuality or whatever you want to call it. Well, she's it. leaving I mean, a lot some... behind at that point. I mean, I wrote a shopping list of, like, you, I won't give it away for spoilers' sake, but I wrote a shopping list re-watching the film of the class. Your, your, the film goes, if a script's meant to be, put them up a tree and throw rocks at them, she gets a bloody bolt. She gets a boulder dropped on her head because it's like yeah. she sees the theatre director get shot and then from that point on, it's everybody but, and then she's on her own, isn't she? Yeah, she's stripped down to the very... Well, she's literally stripped down, isn't she, before he finally rebelled as enough is enough, you know. Yeah. And her revenge. So I think there's a sort of yeah, I think I think what one of the, you know, we talked about pretending. I think one of the things about it is be you have to be careful what you pretend to be in life. And I think with her, you know, she she's almost on the verge of becoming what she pretends to be. And that's the problem. Mm. Is that when you survive something, you you know you have to pretend to survive, and that you know she reaches a point where she's break, she's broken by it, and so the only way is out. You know, the only way of that is out. Whether that's through death or glory, you know, that's where she gets in the film, and I think that's partly what the film is about. And as you say, everything bad that could happen to her does happen, um, but she's she's. She's a kind of survivor. So, well, she is a survivor. So, yeah. Um, well, she, yeah, I mean, I she did... does that. She does that. You know, literally that line. Sometimes you have to pretend to survive. She literally lives it. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's. It, I hadn't thought about it till was just. Talk, I mean, I, I like the line as a kind of macro comment on being in a, in, a, in an occupied country. But thinking about it as we're talking, you know, literally, he's given her the instructions to the the awful situation she finds herself in, which is. You're going to have to pretend to survive, kind of thing. Although it, yeah. the context wasn't there when he originally said it. Yeah, and I think you know the, the relevance of that today as well. Forgetting even you know beyond the sort of immigrant experience or the refugee experience is there's a sort of you know I don't know there's a sort of uh, in social media there's a sort of you know what do we pretend to be what are we you know there's a, there's a lot of those questions. That for us more than ever I see like I say when I'm teaching I see that with my students more than ever mm. you know this what they present and and then who they are and and how that matches up and I think that's a really sort of you know a human question isn't it of what, what really and what and we all have to put on masks to do our jobs or do whatever you know in life so yeah it's a universal and that was one of the things that appealed to me about about the script in the first place well, look, congratulations on Birdcatcher. Uh, I'm very grateful yeah. for you spending your time with us on the podcast. Brilliant. Yeah, and as you say, it's on Amazon Prime, and um, it's a it's an entertaining two hours, I think, or ninety minutes. You're just, you're just over ninety minutes. But just to remind people, then, also, what's the what's the name of the book that's coming out in the spring of 2022? Uh, da, 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 da. Cinema in the Age of Trump: American Dream, American Nightmare, Cinema in the Age of Trump. 
And I wrote that with my dad, Graham Clark. So it's me and my dad. Um, it's a sort of, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, in, I think it's an interesting double perspective on on that period of filmmaking, which, mm. you know, I ultimately love cinema. I love cinema beyond everything. I, I saw the recent Voir series that did on Netflix, and there's, a, there's an episode called Film Versus Television, which I would highly recommend if you want to kind of, for a cinephile, it kind of justifies everything you feel about cinema over just watching television or streaming. That was my experience of watching Titan. I just said to my friends, I said, this is cinema. And it's like when you see it, you know there's a difference. <laughs> it's, different. it's different. It is. And I think, uh, I think it's important that we maintain those differences. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I love watching Succession or I watched Landscapers the other night, you know, which I thought was brilliant. But there is a difference. There is a difference. And uh, I think it's, uh, as you said earlier when we were chatting before this, it's been a good year for cinema. So, you know, it's always, there's life in the old dog, yeah, as they say. Well, look, thank you very much for your time on the Britflix podcast. Pleasure. Thanks, Stuart. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.